Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. Uh, We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, feel free to send those. Go to www.decipher.com. DiscipleDojo.org. You can submit questions through the contact page there. Let's jump into this session. I see a couple of people online here, so um, we're going to go ahead and get started. One of the questions, we're going to try to do two questions today because they're somewhat related. We're going to try to answer um, or two topics that people have sent in to discuss. The first one I had a friend ask, what about Christians and meditation, Uh, you know, transcendental meditation or um, uh, altered consciousness or even through psychedelics or things like that? What's going on with that? What's the Christian view of meditation? And at first glance, you know, you come across there, there, there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, like, for instance, you know, you'll come across books like Mary Baker Eady's Science and Health with key to the scriptures. And this is supposedly about health and wholeness and healing. And this ended up giving rise to what we know of as Christian science movement, which is a pseudo uh, offshoot sect of, it's not Christianity and it's not science, but it uses both of those words uh, because that'll draw people in. Or more recent, you know, you'll have writers like Eckhart Tolle who will write about things like, you know, awakening to your life's purpose, a new earth. For instance, a friend of mine, she read this and gave it to me. It was very meaningful to her, and I read through it a few years ago. Books by Deepak Chopra, you know, I mean, he's always popping up everywhere, giving sage advice and talking about being one with the universe. And you can't even go on Instagram without being inundated by good vibes, universe, positive thinking, manifest. These are all key terms that, I mean, I jokingly tease. They're usually like accompanying a selfie of a basic white girl or a bikini picture. And then it's something about manifest, queen, slay, yes, all these other hashtags that people like to throw around. And it, and it is, you know, I good nature would joke about it. But there's, there's a real draw to spirituality in the world. And it always has, it's not anything new. This has been since the beginning of time. Humans are created with a default setting of recognizing that there is a spiritual plane existence that we can't see or touch or smell or taste there's something out there beyond us and only only recently uh, relatively recently have historically speaking has have you had a push towards scientific materialism or atheism where it's no the universe is only subatomic particles uh, or, or even down to the level of strings vibrating at certain frequencies and that's all there is Everything can be explained through materialistic vibrations or emanations or chemical reactions. That's a relatively new concept in the history of thinking in the human race. But throughout all time and all cultures, there's been an awareness of the divine. There's been an awareness of spirituality. And that, again, you're going to see this theme a lot in our dojo discussions. The first one we ever did a couple of weeks ago, we talked about balance how we're really not good at holding balance. And it's the same thing when it comes to spirituality and Christians. What do we do with spirituality? Again, people fall one of two ways. Some people say, oh, if it's spiritual, it's got to be of God. If somebody has a vision, if they claim to have insight into, and they use the word God, 
or they use the word faith, or they use the word scripture, then we just need to embrace it. And so you've got Christians that kind of run to that. And they get into all sorts of spiritual stuff. And that's how you get these syncretistic concepts like Mary Baker Eady or Eckhart Tolle or uh, Deepak Chopra or any of the gurus of the New Age. You know, just go down the list of Oprah's book club. You're going to get a lot of that. And, and Christians, we want to be in contact with the divine. We believe in the Holy Spirit. So, of course, we want to be spiritual. The other way is some Christians, typically more fundamentalist or maybe sometimes high church Tradition Christians will take the opposite approach, and they'll say, no, anything spiritual that's not from the letter of the Bible is automatically evil, and so you should avoid it. Don't do yoga, because you're going to let demons into your body. Don't read anything New Age. Don't have crystals in your house. Don't have sage or, or, or you know any of these other New Age implements. Uh, just avoid it at all costs. You know, don't even, in other words, it's this reaction against the spiritual where, you know, we, we've got a, oh, your great, great, great grandfather was a Mason. Well, we need to pray against that because that's why there are demons in your life. Or, you know, we talked about some of this a few sessions ago, but there's kind of two reactions, either run to the spiritual and embrace it or run away from it and say it either doesn't exist at all, or if it does exist, it's all evil and have nothing to do with it. So those are kind of the two responses. And neither of those, I think, really do justice to what Scripture teaches. Meditation. Scripture has a lot to say about meditation. Read through the Psalms. You're going to talk, you're going to hear David and others saying things like, I meditate on your word day and night. I meditate on your faithfulness. The concept of going off and being alone, spiritually communing with God, connecting with, with God. That's a very real thing. Jesus would do it all the time. Uh, a number of the prophets would do it. There's real value in spirituality and meditation and, and, and dying to self, self-discipline, self-denial, a level of asceticism, not the crazy asceticism where you go live on top of a pillar in the desert for 50 years, but a level of self-denial, things like fasting, and uh, devoting yourself to prayer at, at regular intervals. So there, there are myriad ways that this can play out. These are all spirituality. These are all things where the human is being in touch with the divine, with God. But we need to hold a balance. In 1 John chapter 4, there's some great advice. Uh, it's one of the last little books in the New Testament. First, not the Gospel of John. But first John. So there's the Gospel of John, and then there's a bunch of New Testament books. Then at the very end, just before Jude and Revelation, are first, second, and third John. And there are these three little books. And first John has a lot to say about this question. How do we know what in the spirit realm is good, what we should listen to, what we should embrace, what we should follow? Because John was writing to Christians way back before there was even such a thing as a New Testament, giving them guidance on how to receive or reject teachers coming to them claiming to have a message from God, because that's nothing new. And so 1 John 4, 1, John says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus the Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So just in this one little section, John gives us some very important things to think about when we're 
discussing or analyzing spirituality. One of those things is spirits exist. The spirit world exists. Now, if you're watching this, you're a skeptic, you're an atheist, again, you may not believe this. Cool. I'm talking to those who do accept the reality of the spiritual, that, that there is something beyond these five senses that we have. Scripture says absolutely there is. But it also says that not everything that spirit is good. And this is the mistake that a lot of New Age or, or, or spiritual universe vibes type manifest, all that kind of thinking. This is something that it misses a lot of times, is it assumes if it's spiritual, that means it's good from God. That's not the case in, in the Christian faith. What biblical Judeo-Christianity teaches, has always taught, and Islam teaches this as well, is that the spirit realm itself contains both good and evil. That it's not just anything spiritual is good and anything earthly is bad. No, that's, you know, platonic dualism. That's gave rise to early Gnosticism, kind of what John's warning against here, that earthly flesh is bad, heavenly spirit is good, and that's the kind of thinking that is that creeps into a lot of New Age philosophies. That's not biblical faith. What biblical faith is, how it distinguishes itself from generic spirituality, is that there's an object to the faith that is definite and that is objectively true, and that it is other, wholly other from us, from creation. In other words, there's creation and there's a creator. And those two things are not the same. This is a key concept that a lot of, you can test spirituality, whether it's Christian or whether it's anything else, by what does it say about the nature of God? Is God, are you just a manifestation of God? Are, you, are we just God trying to find our way home, trying to remember who we truly are? as some spiritual gurus teach, you know, is the universe just an emanation of God, that, that God is that tree, God is that flower, God is that uh, king, God is that beggar, God is everything, God is, really is God everything, because there are some things in creation that are distinctly anti-God, like pedophilia, it's in the news right now, like uh, rape, it's in the news right now, there's a lot of things that are very much, from any moral standpoint that's remotely biblical, that are not of God. So to say, well, it's all just God, we're just different aspects of God, we're all just climbing up the same mountain trying to find our way, not according to the faith of Jesus that he passed on to his followers, not according to the faith of Israel, the God who brought them out of Egypt. There are things that are specifically anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-goodness, and those things are a reality. So beware, that's one thing. Listen to teachings on spirituality. If they start teaching everything is really one, then you know you're no longer in a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview. You're in a different worldview. Whether it's right or wrong, that's a debate that then you can have on other terms. But just know you have left the Christian faith once you've gotten into any faith that teaches we are all God. Because that's Definitely not a message of the Bible. The biblical faith is that God is the creator. We are all offspring of God. We are all creation of God. But where the biblical faith differs from many other forms of spirituality is it says, but at some point in history, this creation went off the rails. In other words, things now are not the way they're supposed to be. 
That's the biblical faith. Spirituality in other forms may say everything is God and you just need to realize it. And once you realize that good and evil, pain and suffering, they all dissolve into the eternal divine nothingness. Okay, great. That's a teaching, but it's not biblical Christianity by any means. And so those who are committed to following Jesus, we don't have to be like up in arms about it. We can just say, okay, well, that's a different thing. That's a different faith than the faith of Jesus, than the faith of the scriptures. And we can distinguish them, and then we can analyze it in light of that. We don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to, um, we don't have to insult it. We don't have to throw stones at it. We don't have to go to war against it, whether physical war or cultural war. We can just go, oh, okay, that's what you believe. Cool. That's, that's not what I believe. That's not what the Judeo-Christian worldview entails. So spirituality, meditation, you, when you look at these things that, that the person who submitted this question was asking about, what I would say is analyze what's the, what's the goal. If you're looking to meditate, what is the goal of your meditation? The goal of Christian meditation, the goal of biblical meditation is to enhance your relationship, your personal relationship with the transcendent creator God and to bring you into a relational experience. The goal in other forms of meditation is to empty yourself, to get rid of yourself. Just had a Wi-Fi glitch and we might have lost the live feed, so restarted it. But again, this is all being recorded on the audio, so... Hang in there. We just talked about when it, when you're analyzing, when you're thinking about meditation, whether it's transcendental, whether it's um, the aid of psychedelics, whether it's through mysticism with the help of a shaman or a guru or something else like that. The thing to keep in mind is what is the goal of that and what is the object of the meditation? The object of biblical meditation is God. God is the object. God is who we seek to be in relationship. Meditation in the biblical sense is a two-way relationship. Meditation in other forms of spirituality is a one-way emptying of yourself. And that's a key difference. Meditation for Christians, for followers of Jesus, is as a focus. God is the focus. Not emptiness for emptiness sake. Not the divine nothingness. Not any of these to be in, in vibrations with the universe, which is where the term vibes comes from. Good vibes, bad vibes. It's, it's belief in vibrations and that that's everything in the universe is about vibrations. That's not what the biblical faith teaches. So the biblical faith teaches relationship and strengthening your relationship with the God of Israel, who is ultimately and most fully revealed in Jesus. That's what John's gospel says. The word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory. So the, the, it, it, what are you trying to do when you're meditating? Are you trying to empty yourself so that you can melt into nothingness? Okay, well, that's not Christian meditation. That's not going to draw you closer to the God of the Bible. Or are you trying to meditate on and ponder and, and think about yourself in relationship to God and creation and his word and all of these different aspects of the biblical faith. And there's there's a whole stream of, of Christian mysticism throughout church history going way back. Uh, if you're looking for some examples, there's some of the, the Catholic mystics. There's writings like St. John of the Cross, 
who meditated and pondered and thought about things like the dark night of the soul and suffering and God's absence. Madame Guyon, a French Catholic mystic who spent a lot of time in, in writing and talking, thinking about unity and, and being enraptured by the love of God and meditating on God's love. Thomas Akempis, his famous book, The Imitation of Christ, is a meditation on the character of Jesus and being like him in this world, meditating on him. Thomas Merton, Dialogues with Silence, is a meditation on things like silence and God's seeming absence. Uh, so this is a whole stream of what we would call Christian mysticism, Christian spirituality. Those are Catholic. There's also Protestants in tradition. There's uh, people like Andrew Murray, who wrote a lot about prayer, which is Christian meditation, communion with God. Uh, William Law, who focused on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and actually having communion with the Holy Spirit and experiencing the power and the transformation and the life change that happens. Um, people followed in their footsteps. People like Watchman Nee, a Chinese Christian who had a lot to say about the normal Christian life, about abiding in walking in the Spirit, rather walking in the flesh. Um, Oswald Chambers, classic devotional, my utmost for his highest, had a meditation, daily devotion on the things of God, on Scripture, on, on a number of subjects. And then finally, I mentioned him last in one of the previous episodes, uh, modern day, Richard Foster, his uh, writings on prayer, his writings on discipline, his book, The Celebration of Discipline, or this book, Prayer, has a lot to say about the concept of meditation, of, of seeking the spirituality, of the, the mysticism, but rooted in the worldview of the biblical, the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, not in the pantheistic scriptures, not in the concepts of endless cycles of births and rebirths, not in losing yourself to all desires, uh, not in becoming one with the universe as you already truly are, just acknowledging it. Those concepts are not biblical, whether they're right or wrong. And I have friends that hold to those different views. And this isn't the time to argue or debate whether it's right or wrong. They're just different. They're just not the same thing. And so Christians especially, beware of being sucked into something that's not what it claims to be. And that's what a lot of spirituality is. A lot of spirituality takes a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Christianity, not much, and then a little bit of like native animism, maybe some ancient uh, platonic ideals, mixes them all together and markets it with slick covers on their books and charismatic speakers that promise new life, manifest things, the secret, making your speaking things into existence. All of these concepts that are at the end of the day, all variations on themes that are not biblical Christian faith. So it's helpful just to know the lay of the land. Um, a great, there's two great resources. I only have one of them. I'll own the other one out. But they're short, super short little books. But Ravi Zacharias, he just passed away recently from cancer. He wrote a series of books that are conversations between Jesus and various figures, fictional conversations. And he wrote two. One was called The Lotus and the Cross, and it's a conversation between Jesus, Buddha, and a girl who had been trafficked into prostitution and was dying of AIDS in Thailand, I believe Thailand. They're having this discussion on a boat along the river about suffering and pain and all of that. And, and it's a discussion 
of how the Christian worldview versus the Buddhist worldview would handle or answer the questions of suffering and pain that this young girl has. He also wrote another one, birth, New Birth or Rebirth, Jesus Talks with Krishna. So this one then, the other was from a Buddhist perspective. This one takes a look at the difference and the conversation between Jesus and Krishna uh, and, and what the views are, the differences between the Christian faith and new birth, being born again, versus the Hindu concept of rebirth, of, of achieving through a series of cycles of birth and rebirths, of achieving um, the ultimate goal, ultimate bliss. Uh, becoming one with the divine. So it's a, a great series. They're very small books. They're fictional discussions. But I recommend for Christians, when you're analyzing, when you're dealing with things of the spirit and claims of things that are spiritual, listen. Listen to what people are claiming. And then weigh that or, 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 or view it through the lens of Jesus and his revealed word. Because anything that God's going to continue to reveal in the future isn't going to contradict what he's revealed through his authoritative word. And so this becomes a standard by which we can appraise different things that claim to be. Think about bouncers. Those of you, I'm in martial arts. I know a lot of friends that have worked security at at clubs, bars, restaurants, uh, you know, VIP, whatever. Think about when when bouncers or door people at clubs are learning to spot fake IDs. They don't study all the fake IDs out there. I mean, they may have a general sense of, you know, this is what to look for because this shows like, but what they learn to recognize is a real ID. Or think of counterfeit, anti-counterfeit agents in government. You know, people that, that FBI agents or, or NSA or whichever department, I can't remember, I think it's FBI, that handles counterfeiting. They, they are up on the counterfeiting technologies and the different ways that counterfeiters work. But the number one thing that they have a fundamental awareness of is the real thing. If you know what a real whatever is, then you can easily spot the counterfeit. Even if you don't know exactly why or what makes that counterfeit, you can spot it. If you know a real Rolex watch, easy to spot a counterfeit. If you're an expert on the real thing, if you're a collector of fine watches, you see a Rolex, oh, this is legit. You see a knockoff, you don't know where it's from, You don't. You, but you're like, hmm, this is not legit. Because you're so familiar with the real thing that the counterfeits become easy to see. Well, spirituality is the same way for those who are following Jesus. Is is be familiar? You don't have to be familiar with all of the spiritualities out there. Be familiar with the spirituality of Jesus. Then you're able to discern and recognize the vying, competing spiritualities that are floating around out there. Um, so. That's going to that's gonna segue us in. We're about halfway through, so right on time. That's going to segue us into the next question or, or issue that we want to discuss today. Um, you know, because semi-related to the new age uh, spiritual concepts, what's going on in the spirit realm and all of that, um, is also, okay, what's going on right now in the world, events? that we don't see. So right now there's a big push, like on Facebook, for instance, there's a lot of posts that people are sharing about high ranking elite 
people in Hollywood and finance, uh, in government, they're involved in these intricate schemes where they traffic human beings and pedophilia, young girls being sold for sex and, and you know, online child pornography exploding everywhere and Twitter and Google and others hovering it up. And there, there's, I mean, check your feed and you will probably see something about that. There's, it's, it's in the news cycle right now. And so that raises questions that people have, like, what is going on in the world? What is what is being uncovered? And I've had people ask me uh, in person and through online submission of questions, what's going on in the world right now? Is this, are we seeing things that the Bible has predicted with the, with the unmasking of evil and with powers rising up, you know, satanic, demonic evil, which is pedophilia and sex trafficking. There's nothing more demonic, satanic, and evil than that. Um, so it, what's happening and how we know, and there's friends have sent me links to videos on YouTube with um, you know, presenters showing things ranging from the Illuminati to vaccines, COVID-19, um, New World Order, the, the pedophile ring in Hollywood and secret rituals where they drink the blood of babies and all of this kind of stuff. And it, there's just, there's so much out there. How do we ferret the truth from the fear mongering and from the conspiracy theory stuff? Uh, again, remember that concept of balance. Do we embrace it all? No, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. Do we reject it all? No, there's real stuff going on out there that we don't know about. That's thoroughly evil. So, what I want to talk about is there's a broad grouping of, of theological viewpoints that you can all put under the same umbrella. You can all you can lump them all together. Uh, whenever you hear preachers or teachers or, or authors start talking about certain things, certain keywords, then you can know where they're coming from a little bit. When, when you hear phrases like New World Order, Great Tribulation, uh, the Antichrist as an individual figure, um, Armageddon, Abomination of Desolation, Rapture, uh, these are all terms that are broadly lumped together under a system of interpreting the Bible known as dispensationalism. It's a fancy word, dispensationalism. And it comes from the idea that the Bible can be divided up into seven dispensations, periods of time. And in each dispensation, God relates to humanity in a different way, at a different time, in different dispensations. And we are in the next to the last dispensation, and then there are certain events that the Bible has sprinkled throughout. There are certain events, and if we piece those together the right way, we get a roadmap of what the end of the world is going to look like. So we get the newspaper written in advance. If we know Bible verses and what, which one's talking about what events. So this all, this all goes back, and it started with C.I. Schofield. This is the Schofield Reference Bible. This is a, obviously a pocket-sized edition. But the Schofield Study Bible was the first North American Study Bible that put a system of cross-references in the Bible that said this verse 
is talking about the same thing that this verse is talking about. And so there was a system. You can read this in, in the introduction by Schofield at the beginning of the, the text. He tells you this, that if you read the Bible verses linked together in the way that he has linked them, you'll get a proper understanding about the end times and what God's doing and the age we live in now, which he taught and was taught, is right before Jesus' return. So we're kind of at the end of the end. So if you read and interpret the Bible based on these cross-references and the study notes that he includes throughout, then you arrive at this big-picture roadmap of the end of the world and what's going to happen. And then you can know where we are. You can be on the lookout for what's coming next. And you won't be deceived by the false prophets and the false teachers and everything that's out there. And this was, this was in 1901, I think this was published. And it dominated uh, as the church spread west. It, it expanded. This expanded faster than traditional Christian theology. This system of thinking, dispensational thinking, 1830s was when it was created. John Nelson Darby, um, Edward Irving over in, in the United Kingdom, and then C.I. Schofield put it into a study Bible format, and this spread. This was the first study Bible for generations of Christians in North America. And so this view, this way of reading the Bible, picked up, gained steam, People founded Bible colleges based specifically to teach that view. Uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which is Biola. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary. Moody Bible Institute. These view, these, these like Christian schools, seminary, they weren't seminary, they were Bible colleges at the time. Uh, they were founded to, in large part, teach this way of reading the Bible, this specific end times view known as dispensationalism. And obviously, textbooks and biblical theology aren't bestsellers usually. So what happened was in around the 60s, uh, 50s, and, but mainly the 60s, during the, the Red Scare, the Cold War, um, uh, the, 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 the independence and, and refounding of Israel, that was a huge one, uh, dispensationalists gained steam because they started saying, guys, look, all the signs that are in that way of thinking about the end of the world, they're happening all around us. And so you started getting books popping up. Uh, for instance, The Guide to Survival, How the World Will End. A whole book, this is 1968, I believe, a whole book about things like uh, modern warfare and rise of Russia and communism and the different things we can look for at the end of days and how we can be prepared, how you can survive this coming great tribulation that's about to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. So you need to get ready. And there were books like this. What really set them off, what really kind of put this into hyperdrive was this, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. This was what a whole generation, because what Hal Lindsey did was he took that form of theology and he said, let me tell you exactly how this is going to play out. Let me tell you what Russia is going to do. And then Russia doing this, let me tell you what's going to happen to Israel. And Israel is going to experience this. And let me tell you what part the, the, the European powers are going to play in it. And then communist China. 
they're going to be. So it was like basically this whole scenario of, of how you can read modern day powers in the world in theological form. And so this really got people, I mean, this sold uh, millions and millions and millions of copies. At this point, there are 10 million copies in print. This is an older edition. It sold more since then. Uh, old Hal Lindsey, he's, he's got reason to be grinning. He sold a lot of books. Well, then in the 80s and 90s, what happened with this is an author, two authors teamed up and said, what if we told all of that in the form of a novel that was like a, like a John Grisham or a Tom Clancy thriller? And so Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins came up with Left Behind. And that series of books are an, a publishing juggernaut. It became the number one bestseller. Christian, I mean, there are whole Baptist bookstores that survived the 90s based on their sales of left behind books and merchandise. Spawned video games, not one, but two movies, Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage. Talk about Hollywood elite. And it spawned an entire industry of how to think about and get people ready for the end times. So all of these signs, if you know the signs, then you'll be ready. And so you go through, based on Schofield and others since him who have kind of tweaked his system a little bit, you go through the Bible and you read it in these certain orders, and all of a sudden you've got this whole chart of the end times laid out for you. And when I say chart, I'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. I mean chart of the end times and all the events that are going to happen. And it's all laid out. So if you buy the resources, read the books, read the biblical passages in the order that they're laid out, link this to this, this to this, then you can work your way through this chart and you can know where we are roughly in the events going on in the world. It's very popular among Christians because people have always wanted to know the future. People have always wanted to know what's going to happen and how do I best prepare for it. And so if you tell somebody well, the Bible tells you and if you read it according to this way of reading it, you can know, then people who may not know anything else about the Bible are going to flock to these writings in order to learn how to read the Bible that way so that they can know what's going on. And there's endless permutations of this way of reading the Bible. See, late great planet Earth had a second edition let that, let that sink in for a second, that a book about prophecy that was explaining things had to be revised. These end times prophetic experts have been assigning names and places and political leaders to biblical texts for decades, century, over a century, since the 1830s at least. 
And the only thing that's consistent is they've all been wrong. And they've all had to update the claims. There was a book in 19, I can't remember the date it came out. I want to say in the 70s. I remember I was a kid when it came out. And it was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. It had all kinds of biblical biblical teachings, um, verses linked here and there, world events, news clippings. One of the big ones was under that system of reading the Bible that, that Darby and others came up with, Jesus is said to have predicted that when Israel is restored, there will be one generation before he returns. That, that's how they read two passages, a couple of passages in the Bible, particularly Jesus's discussion on the Olivet Discourse. And they read it and they say, so Jesus is teaching, which in the section he's not, but under this view, they say Jesus is teaching that when Israel is reconstituted, that is the last generation before he's going to return. What happens in 1948? Israel is granted nation status. So a generation from 1948, a, a traditional biblical generation, these authors claimed, was 40 years. So 40 years after 48, 88. 88 came and went. I remember. I was, I was in third grade uh, the day that it was supposed to happen. <laughs> Jesus was supposed to come back. And nothing happened. So then, what do you do if you're an end times expert? You go, oh, okay, Israel was recognized in 1948, but they didn't control Jerusalem until they won it back from Jordan in war and reclaimed the Temple Mount. So that's the date that Jesus must have been speaking of, the reconstitution of Israel. So you just count off 40 years from there. Or you hedge your bets and say, a biblical generation is 40 to 100 years. You just make the timetable longer. And prophecy experts, and I'm using the term expert extremely ironically, do this all the time. Vague, vague predictions that they try to make definite. And when that doesn't work, you just bump the time scale back. Oh, well, it wasn't 1948. The clock should have started in 1967. Oh, well, that didn't work. So maybe it's another day. Because Israel still doesn't control the West Bank. So once they annex the West Bank, then they'll control all of the land of Israel. So then that's when the countdown starts. You know, you can, you can move the goalposts anywhere you want and come up with something that fits. And that's what so many of these videos that, that are out there circulating in these end times teachings, they do that very thing. They move the goalposts around and they take the scriptures that they're teaching from entirely out of the context in order to say that they're talking about this. One example off the top of my head, there's a passage in Ezekiel. And it talks about, it's, it's a vision Ezekiel has of, of kind of like the end, and, and Israel is surrounded. And it mentions Gog of Magog, this term, just, this figure. We don't know who it's talking about, Gog, Magog. And, and it's, it's this enemy that surrounds Jerusalem and then ultimately is defeated by God. 
And it's just this, it's a vision that Ezekiel had. And so for a long time, you know, people have wondered what that is. And, and some of them said, well, that these are depictions of armies that are going to literally come against Israel at the end of the world. And others have said, no, this is a, this is a prophetic symbol of the forces of evil in general attacking God's people in general. So no matter where they are, whether they're in modern day Israel or whether they're living in Greenland, the, at the end end, there's going to be a conflict between good and evil. And so some people take it that way, and others are like, no, it's very literal. Well, some authors are linked, because the, that passage talks about um, Gog being the chief, or using the word head, which in Hebrew is rosh, and of, of the leaders in that area. And it mentions others, uh, Meshach and, and Tubal, these other names, these these not even biblical, they're kind of mythological almost names. Well, some people have said Rosh sounds like Russia. So this is talking about Russia. And Meshach is Moscow. Tubal is Tobolsk. So this is going to be Russia attacking Israel. And, and whole biblical teachings about Russia gathering their armies to invade and attack Israel have been put out there. All based on the fact that the, the enemy that's mentioned in Ezekiel is coming from the north, which to attack Israel, you have to either come from the north or the south, because on the east is desert, on the west is ocean. So one of the two directions. But disregard that. It's got to be Russia because it, sounds, it uses the word head, chief, top, Rosh. And Rosh sounds like Russia. And that's just not how biblical prophecy works. That's just not how prophetic interpretation works. Um, that's not what the authors of the writings had in mind at the time. And only somebody living now, in this time period, in our part of the world, would ever make that connection. That's the thing to keep in mind when you're analyzing end times prophecy teaching. Ask yourself, would any reader of scripture in the history of the world ever arrive at this understanding of this passage in this way? Or is this so specific that you have to have all of this cultural knowledge and exist right now at this point in time in order for it to make sense. Because that's one of the biggest problems with interpreting prophetic books, books like Revelation, is people read the books through a modern 21st century geopolitical lens. And what that means is that the books would have no meaning to the people that they were originally written to that they could ever understand. Think about that. Let's take Revelation in particular. If Revelation was written to tell 21st century North American church how to live in light of the coming European Union Antichrist figure, or if you're a Democrat, the Donald Trump Antichrist figure, or if you're a Republican, the Obama Hillary Antichrist figure, or fill in blank. If that was the purpose of Revelation, what meaning would it ever have had to the seven churches in Asia Minor that it was originally written to. Seven churches 
in what is today modern Turkey 2,000 years ago. And John the Elder writes to them and says, hey guys, I know you're suffering. I know you're undergoing persecution and I know it's about to get worse. Let me tell you what's going to happen 2,000 years from now on the other side of the world in a continent you don't even know exists yet. What sense does that make? What cover, what illumination, what guidance could that possibly have given the readers of Revelation or the readers of Daniel or the readers of Ezekiel or Zechariah? So, if we have, it's a basic biblical term, uh, rule of biblical interpretation is scripture can't mean to us legitimately something that it would never have meant to its original audience in any way, shape, or form. That's not what we get from it. We can't just start, that's called eisegesis, reading something into the text, eisegesis. What we want to do is exegesis, pulling the meaning out of the text. So when reading Revelation, for instance, or Daniel, or Ezekiel, or Thessalonians, put the newspaper away, log off the internet, or at least the news feed, because the question to ask is not, what are these things going on in the world, uh, where, where are they in the Bible? But the question you have to ask is first, what do these books mean? What did they mean to the original audience? What did the original readers of Daniel, Ezekiel, what did the Thessalonians, what did John's readers in the seven churches, what did it mean to them? How has it influenced and how has it been relevant to believers throughout the ages? Because all scripture is God-breathed, all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, reproving, correcting, training in righteousness. That's what it's there for. So, all the people in all the history of the world up until now, what would Scripture have said to them? Only then, only after we've done that, can you then look around and go, huh, I wonder where we see shades of that in the world today. So when you hear things like uh, there's, there's Internet videos about Babylon and the Babylon in the Bible being a code word for a renewed empire. And which nation is it? You know, is the European Union? Is it America? Is it communist China? Uh, which nation is Babylon? Well, there's been a lot of Babylons. Because Babylon was an actual empire in the ancient Near East that God actually judged, that actually collapsed. It was the personification. It was the embodiment of pagan superpower evil imperial evil and so it became synonymous with the system or any system or any ruler that sets itself up against God or his people and so throughout the ages Babylon has been able to character characterize a number of entities that have arisen that have acted like Babylon it's like evil is this undercurrent. Think of if world history is along a timeline and there's this undercurrent of evil, there's this undercurrent of supernatural evil. Every now and then it pops up, it, it shoots up through into history. And sometimes it may take on, you know, like a Genghis Khan or Hitler or Stalin or whoever is next. 
it pops up periodically. And what Scripture is telling us when we read it, and we see how Babylon is depicted, is that there's a lot of Babylons. And anything that acts like Babylon can expect the fate of Babylon in the Bible. And the fate, the ultimate fate of Babylon is destruction in the book of Revelation. Well, Revelation, the Babylon that John was referring to in Revelation is the Roman Empire. Well, when was the Babylon of John's day? Throughout the church, different organizations, different entities, different rulers have arisen who could legitimately wear the mask of Babylon. And the fate of everyone is the same. And that's what Scripture teaches, is that God works these ways throughout history. Now, will there one day come an ultimate capital B Babylon? It's the culmination, like all the previous Babylons were just a dress rehearsal for the one final one. All the previous Antichrists were dress rehearsals for this final Antichrist, whether it's an individual or whether it's an entity or whether it's a corporation or, or something, maybe biblical prophecy works that way throughout history. You see Jesus applying language that the Old Testament prophets apply to literal Babylon. Jesus applies that language to Jerusalem before he's crucified and the coming judgment that's going to happen to them that happened in 70 A.D., and then Revelation's author, John, applies the same language that was applied to literal Babylon, to Jerusalem. He applies it to Rome in his day. So why not that language could apply to any future manifestations of that same kind of evil? We understand that this way, then we get a lot less worried about things like vaccines and credit card chips and, and you know, technological uh, things that were always oh, the mark of the beast is this uh, this part of Babylon and, and I need to come out of that or I need to have anything to do with this you know is it Bill Gates or, or you know any of these other George Soros or New World Order the Illuminati the Rothschilds the blah 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 whatever whatever well it doesn't matter biblically speaking none of that matters because in every age God had known his people and God will ultimately judge evil and so if you're among God's people, even if you go through suffering, which you will, God is still going to be victorious in the end, and so will you. That's the message of Revelation. That's the message of all the prophets in the Bible. God has the last word. All the rights, all the wrongs get right in the end. So we don't need to worry about the coming, like, are we in the end times? Yeah. We've been in the end times since Pentecost. When Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and sent Holy Spirit, Peter stood up at Pentecost, gave his speech at the temple in Jerusalem, and said, "This we are now in the end times, the latter days. This is what prophet was talking about. And he goes on to quote from Joel. We've been in the end times ever since then. How far are we along in the end times? I don't know. Does Jesus call us to know and predict? No. Does he call us to be ready because he could return at any moment? Yep. So that's how we live. 
in expectation that Jesus could return at any moment. There's not a checklist that we have to watch the news and see which country moves their troops where and, and what technology comes out and which Antichrist figure arises before this and that and what temple has to be rebuilt and all of this stuff. We don't need any of that. We just live in expectation. Jesus is going to win. Evil is going to lose. In the meantime, we may suffer, but we are going to stand firm till the end because God is the final word. John begins Revelation. John begins the book of Revelation by saying, I, John, your fellow sufferer in the tribulation that is in Christ Jesus. Revelation 1.9. Some versions say affliction or trouble. It's the word clipsis, and it means tribulation. So even when people say, well, well, is the tribulation about to happen? Yes, it's already happening. It's been happening. John was a participator in the tribulation. Is there a difference between the tribulation John experienced and the great tribulation? I don't see one in scripture. I have friends in India who have had family members killed in front of them for their Christian faith. That's tribulation. How do you get more horrendous than that? Kids being sex trapped through Southeast Asia or Miami or Atlanta. That's pretty hellish. That's tribulation. How do you get more? What's worse than that for those kids? So, Tribulation is part of what it means to be in Jesus. We don't need to be worrying and fretting and, and watching the news or what technology is coming out that's going to be the mark of the beast or what's going to... Relax. God's in control. Follow what we know. Leave what we don't know up to him. Remember we said last time, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things he's revealed belong to us so that we live according to them. Um. I'm going to end with a couple of resources. We've got 30 seconds, but we've got a camera break. So I'm going to take this few extra minutes. Um, a couple more resources having to do with end time stuff. The biggest one, well, first of all, there's a book by a devilishly handsome author. Uh, this is my book called You Want to Be Left Behind. It's available paperback or on Kindle. Amazon this is essays on the Bible and popular end times teaching. Maybe we'll do a session on this one coming up. According to Jesus, you want to be left behind. You don't want to be taken. Being taken is bad. You want to be left behind. That's the exact opposite of what left behind actually teaches, but it's what the Bible teaches. So this is a book that I have out. It's very easy to read. It's short. You can uh, handle it. Any of you can, I'm sure. But check that out. Accompanying that, Disciple Dojo, we have two resources that I want to make you available. The one that accompanies that book is called Apocalypse Now, question mark. What the Bible teaches about the end times. This is an audio course. This is all audio. There's no video of this one yet. I'd love for there to be video. I'd love to come teach this in a church somewhere sometime and record it and make it available on video. But right now it's audio only. It's on the podcast. So if you go to disciplededojo.org slash podcast, Apocalypse Now. It's 10 sessions, each one's over an hour, and it walks through everything the Bible teaches and all the different views and how do we read Scripture in light of thinking about the end times and things that are happening and world events and uh, heaven, hell, the afterlife, all of that. So free, completely free resource. Check it out. Then we do have video, although it was recorded a long time ago, about 10 years ago, so the video's 10 years ago video quality. But Revelation a guided tour of the apocalypse. This is a video series on the Disciple Dojo. 
So you go to DiscipleDojo.org, click on Turn the Spirit, videos, this will pop up in one of them. This is a course. You can download this, this as a PDF workbook. Um, this is a course. We walk through the book of Revelation chapter by chapter. We talk about what did it mean to them and how have different people interpreted it over the years. So those two resources uh, are more than enough. And each one of those, if you download the, the accompanying handouts that goes with it, they have further reading and, and internet articles and things that can give you uh, a, a broader understanding. So, okay, we're out of time. We're right at an hour, so we're gonna cut it today. Um, if you have questions that have come up while you're watching this, or as you're watching this, if you're gonna watch it later, Shoot me those in an email uh, or message me on Facebook. And if I'm able to, we'll address those in the next session that we do. Uh, either later this week or sometime this weekend is when we'll do the next one. And then we'll be back here Tuesday at noon next week for sure. Guys, thanks for tuning in during the quarantine. It's, it's hard not being able to do any ministry, any teaching live. So I just have to trust that this is getting out there to people who will be um, interested in it and we'll find it helpful. So thanks a lot. You guys have a great week. Bye.